Hi everyone, I'm, well, it's obvious, I'm John Verhoeven, and I was a cop back in the 80s in Sydney. And I'm Paul Verhoeven, John's son. I'm an author, and I wrote two books about Dad's time as a cop. The first five seasons of Loose Units spanned my time in general duties, forensics, my time as a firefighter, and even my stint running a funeral home. This season we're visiting the locations of Australia's most notorious, baffling, horrific crimes, and looking at what happened there. From Snowtown to The Family. From the Morehouse murders to haunted highways. This season of Loose Units is your go-to guide to the worst crimes in Australian true crime history. Welcome to Loose Units, The Shadow Files. Hello and welcome to Loose Units, The Shadow Files. This week is part three of our look at the kidnapping of the Limburg baby. And obviously this case will involve mentions of bad things happening to children. I mean, if you listen to part three, you already know, but we always consider it important to give you a bit of a heads up where we can. Now, Dad, I think it's about time we looked at the actual investigation itself. And I know that true crime stories are littered, Australia or otherwise, littered with law enforcement making odd choices, not always bad ones, but sometimes odd. I think it's fairly safe to say that the investigation into the kidnapping of the Lindbergh baby is... It's a bit of a singular case, yeah? Mm. At the time um, that all this happened, bearing in mind the incredible world notoriety of Lindbergh himself for his extraordinary flight from uh, New York to Paris, and mm-hmm. you, you recall how the, uh, the crowds basically, you know, took every component of his plane as a keepsake. He was a rock star. Yeah, they were yeah. stripping the parts. They wanted souvenirs. Strip- yeah, one hundred and fifty thousand people, biggest traffic jam ever in the history of the universe. They crowd surfed him point. for half an yeah. hour. They crowd yeah. surfed him. He just couldn't. I mean, they dragged him out of his plane. He was mm. famous. Um, the president of the United States of America um, got involved. Uh, the head of you know the head of the FBI. The problem was, and it's a problem that we've encountered many times over the years doing loose units is that police forces that, yeah. that cross multiple jurisdictions yeah. are invariably reluctant to share intelligence. And I remember when I was in the police force, we had a term for the detectives and we used to call them uh, and t- until, of course, I went into... <laughs> Until I went into plain clothes, but we used to call them the Glory Boys. Yes, and that is a term that has been used a fair bit in the Loose Units books, and it always tickles me. Um, do you think they know, yeah. or sorry, do you think they knew? Do you think they knew? Do they? Do we think they knew what? Do you think detectives knew that they were referred to as Glory Boys? Paul, Paul, they come, they come up through the ranks. They were in uniform. <laughs> They were very oh. much aware of it. <laughs> oh, right. So, yes, of course. So, right. So, what you're saying is when you're in uniform, you call them glory boys and then you become them and you try and pretend that you weren't insulting them the whole, the whole time. And also, or you yeah. swear to be a different kind of detective, maybe, you know. I was in the city a few days ago and a detective got out of a car and he was mm-hmm. dressed immaculately with his, his Armani suit. Yep. And he gets out. You can clearly see his sidearm, you know, um, his, his pistol. Mm-hmm. And he sort of very, he stands up in front of all these girls that are in, sort of in this cafe and they're all sort of drooling. And he sort of very nonchalantly and very slowly and casually as though he's on a catwalk sort of puts his uh, puts his jacket over. But he, he lets yeah. everyone know what he does. 
Okay, yes, that's that, that is your classic detective. Uh, Glory boy. Okay, but also, I mean, it's hard work. It's 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 a tough gig, and behind uh, those sort of moments of you know the, the flamboyant, um, high-profile crimes, it's just yeah. a lot of hardcore, painstaking investigative work that is just you know for every sort of moment of, of glory i.e an arrest um a, a conviction in court such and such is found guilty that would represent one percent of what we don't see believe you me it's yep. meticulous it's um it's it's dogged determination and of course detectives today are not just working on one case clearly they've got They've got so many cases. There's only a finite number of detectives. Yeah. And the crimes keep happening. But the of... crimes that were happening. But the Lindbergh crime was obviously, there were a lot of detectives involved. There were a lot of people lot. involved. Yeah? Mate, I'll tell you, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to say this. I find this case very problematic. Okay. On so many levels. Uh, but we'll talk about that at the end as to what you think happened to the baby, what I think happened to okay. the baby. Mm-hmm. Okay, there was talk that, I mean, they had numerous suspects, clearly. Now, one mm-hmm. of the suspects, she, her name was Violet Sharp. Now, she was a waitress in the home of Mrs. Lindbergh's mother. Okay, okay. her name was Mrs. Dwight Morrow. Now, Paul, when yep. someone says to me that um, a member of staff, a waitress in a private home... To me, that smacks of extreme wealth. It's and it's just—I mean—a waitress. That's not even. Yeah. That's not even. <laughs> I don't even know what to say to that. To, no, because a waitress is—you could have like a, a a person who does a whole like a whole bunch of stuff. A um a Niles, if you will, a butler. Yeah. But when you have a waitress, they have that one specific job. Okay, so the waitress. Tell she me about it. she was a suspect in this case. And the police have said, the FBI have said that she was not a suspect, but they were about to bring her in yeah. to be re-questioned. Because you mentioned it may have been an inside job, so that yeah. would have been pretty I'm, I'm I just, I, we can talk about that towards the end as well, what we both yep. think about that. But okay. uh, the member of staff, uh, the waitress, yeah. she, um, she took her own life prior to being interviewed for a second time. Now, the police, uh, or at the time, were uh, were convinced that there was no connection with the abduction. But if I'm going to be called in a second time to be questioned about such a uh, very public case, yeah. I think that's, um, that's fairly uh, interesting circumstantial evidence. Yeah. So... The president at the time, Franklin D. Roosevelt, who most people will have heard of, he, what he wanted to do was get all the the, the parties involved, all the different um, authorities, to come mm-hmm. together, and yep. the FBI were going to collate all the information because we must remember that the ransom money was paid in cash and gold certificates. Now these gold certificates were beginning to be used. Okay, so they were yep. used, um, and I think we touched on it last week, local post offices, department stores, you know, filling, you know, um, 
gas filling stations, which would indicate mm-hmm. the the person that had committed the um, the kidnapping received the gold uh, certificates had a car because they're buying gasoline. Yeah, and I I read this this morning because I just love doing research. What you've heard of the Edison phonograph? I have yes. Uh, the early records. What they did, they got the, the remember the doctor, the ex school principal. Yeah, yes, I do. He, I do. He he had actually met the kidnapper, as had a taxi driver, because you may recall that of the thirteen ransom notes, I think it was n- number five was hand delivered to the the principal, retired principal. Now the cab driver had been given the fifth ransom note by a person. Now became fairly clear that the person... You, do you recall, Paul, the nationality that you felt the person was based on a particular word he used in a letter? He used... We th- okay, so the grammar was very bad, listeners, as you recall, and I thought uh, gut, which is German for good, mm. was a yep. tell. So I'd be... Yeah, I'd say German. Good, good, good. Uh, good investigative work, Paul. What they did at the Edison Phonograph Company, they got the retired principal and uh, doctor... Uh, by degree, they got him in. They got him to record the... They got him to basically impersonate the accent of the person that he'd met. And with these recordings, I mean, that would never happen today. Can you imagine getting a witness (laughs) in and get him to impersonate a Chinese person? Well, also, it's just... It's like, yeah... Saying what you heard and then a statement being written is one thing, but actually doing an impression of the yes. thing and treating that as any kind of evidence is insane. Uh, well, I, I concur, but is it? Because it turns out that, that was, um, as, as we will hear, yeah. right on the mark. The impersonation was absolutely spot on. Now, you okay. may recall also that there was the ladder and... They brought in an expert from the Forestry Commission. Yeah. And the evidence that this specialist from the Department of Agriculture, Mm -hmm. his name was Arthur Kohler, he was brought in to examine the ladder in extreme detail. And what he does, he disassembles the ladder and he works out all the different types of timber the mm-hmm. tool the tools involved the milling so he went then to all the mills in the local area he mm-hmm. he he examined the nail holes and he could prove that one of the pieces of this fairly well built ladder yeah had actually been used in a previous life and it had been involved in some indoor construction Okay. So, I'm just going to say this, that at the court case, which we will talk about, yeah. this is the first time ever that expert evidence was used in relation to timber. It's the first case ever, and I dare say definitely not the last. So, that's very, very important. Now, okay. this, is, this is the big... This is when things really start to happen. Mm-hmm. On August the 20th, 1934, until 
well into September, yeah. 16 gold certificates had been used. And they were used within a very, very specific area. And they're starting to get to piece together some really good information. They set up a map at the FBI and they use yeah. these um, colored pins. And every time a gold certificate is used, they, they, they put it into a map and they begin to get a really, really good idea together with, you may recall, some of the, the, the um, letters that were posted to the Lindbergh family were postmarked yeah. in New York City from an area very, very close to where these pins are indicating that someone is using these gold notes to buy things. Gotcha. And then a, a guy that works at a service station, mm-hmm. he, because people are starting to become aware of these gold notes and yep. this particular very, very um, fastidious and switched on service station attendant, a guy comes in and uses a gold certificate to buy five gallons of petrol and as the guy's leaving, mm. he felt he was a little bit sus. He he wrote the registration number of right. the car. Okay? Yep. Which is absolutely fascinating. All right, Paul. We're at the pointy end of this story now. Okay. The license number of the, uh, the motor vehicle belonged to a Bruno Richard Hauptmann. Hmm. Uh, and that sounds like a German name to me. Sounds German. And he lived at 1279 East 222nd Street, okay. the Bronx, New York. Right. So for about 24 hours, mm-hmm. the police, and I'm talking a, a Scheissen, to use the German turd term. <laughs> that was a Freudian slip. The German turd, the German word. God, I'm funny. Um, you can't script this stuff, can you? Well, you can. Um, yeah, comedians do all the time, have. but not as not as effortlessly as you. No. So, and and there's a very very poignant part to this story, and I'm going to. I thought we could even maybe do an episode on it. It's it's, it's a very very sad sad sort of postscript to this story, even though we haven't finished this story. But the police waited until around about nine a.m. The, you can imagine the surveillance. It's yeah. gone all night. They actually don't know what the guy looks like, do they? They've got an no, address. They wouldn't. No. It's it's a block of units. Yeah. And they would see a lot of people coming in and out. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to cut to something fascinating, and then slip right back in. Sure. I I thought to myself when I first started doing this research that 9 a.m is a really it's a funny time to do a raid isn't it or to wait it's just it's an odd time it's it's there are maximum number of people around it just there was something that didn't quite gel with me yes and then i read a very very moving story from the offender's wife he with his wife had a little baby which makes the story uh, somewhat more interesting because it it sort of it creates this bit of drama in your mind about 
you've got a little baby and then you go out and kidnap a baby. Yeah. It's it's surreal. What I gleaned, listeners and Paul, yes. the reason they waited until 9am is that the wife and child and a friend, yeah. female friend, mm-hmm. they'd already left the building and they'd gone for a walk and it turns out to be quite a long walk. Uh-huh. And around about nine o'clock, and bearing in mind they've only got a, a, a description of this gentleman, yeah, they've never really seen him. Uh, he comes out of the building, and they they arrest him, and one of the because he's making his way towards the car that has the license plate that is linked to the five gallons of petrol that was used to purchase with one of the gold certificates. Issued by the Lindbergh family. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Gotcha. Now, the first thing they do is they search him. They find a $20 gold, one of the um, certificates. He's actually carrying one. And they also find a pair of shoes that were very, very closely linked to footprints found at the foot of the ladder. Yep, okay. And then Hauptmann starts to admit that he'd made uh, a lot of purchases. And then, do you recall there was the taxi driver who received the fifth ransom note? Yes, I do, yes. From a gentleman. His name was Joseph mm-hmm. Perone. He then makes a positive ID. Right. Because that he picked up the ransom note from a gentleman and yep. then conveyed it to Dr. Condon. Gotcha. And things began to unravel fairly quickly. And then they also had a witness that had identified... Hauptmann's vehicle the day before in the vicinity of the Lindbergh home. That's the day prior to the kidnapping. Yeah. And 
then they took samples of his handwriting. Now, you may gotcha. recall, you've seen the... Yes. Uh, the, the very map. distinct, very distinct very, handwriting. Yes. Yep. And they sent the copy of the writing to the FBI laboratory and they had numerous experts mm -hmm. looking at the writing. Um, you know, the characteristics that we all have when we write, you know, things yeah. that are sort of ingrained in over a long period of time. And it was a unanimous decision by the handwriting experts that there was a striking resemblance and it was in fact the writing of Hauptmann. So they're putting together okay. a, a very, very strong case. Yep. And then they find out that he, he was 35 years of age. He was a native of Saxony in Germany. He had a criminal record okay. for relatively minor offences. He'd spent a bit of time in jail. He'd actually stowed away on a ship from Germany that arrived in New York on July the 13th, 1923, where he was arrested and deported immediately. He then tried again. And then on the third attempt, he was successful. And he marries a woman called Anna Schoffler. She too was German. They had a son who, just for everyone's um, information, is that my research has, has gleaned that uh, the son is still alive. And, um, and that, that wow. is, is interesting. And the, the wife, uh, well, that's a whole, you could do a whole podcast on, on the wife. And it is, it, it's interesting reading because by all accounts, um, she says and, and she maintains that they had the most extraordinarily wonderful marriage and everything just seemed fantastic and uh, we'll, we'll just come back to that shortly. Okay. Um, so they had a trial and he was, he was found guilty and some of the evidence was about what, what, what happened was when they went up to his, to his flat, they went into the attic, up into the floor space, and they found... Do you recall uh, when they did the examination of the ladder, there was a piece of timber that they knew had been used somewhere else because it had secondary nail holes in it? Yes, yes, they I do. They found that that came from just that one piece from a section of ceiling in Hauptmann's apartment. And that matched perfectly with uh, one of the rungs of the ladder. And then they find inside mm -hmm. um, a door frame within a cupboard, they find the telephone number and address of the retired school principal. And the handwriting yep. scrawled on the inside of a cupboard matched Hauptmann's mm -hmm. handwriting. I the sample taken that was examined yep. by experts and the um, the ransom note. And on February the 13th, 1935, mm -hmm. um, after a trial, he was, uh, the, the jury found him guilty. Yep. Returned a positive, um, uh, you know, the, that he had in fact committed first degree murder and 
uh, Hartman was sentenced to death and there were some appeals and he was uh, eventually electrocuted. Um, It's a very, very tragic story. And just coming back to Hauptmann's wife, when Hauptmann's wife and a friend of hers and the baby were coming back from the walk, the wife looked up and she could see police ransacking their apartment. Mm -hmm. Can you imagine the horror? She goes upstairs. They had completely trashed the apartment. And one of the police officers said to the wife, he, and I quote, your husband's going to burn for this. So there was a lot of hatred and animosity and tension and stress. And listeners, a poignant side to this particular story is that Hauptmann's wife lived well into her 90s. Her life is, is both extraordinary and not extraordinary. And... You can imagine the tirade of abuse she, she uh, you know, copped for a long, long time. People used to shout yeah. out, you know, child killer, mm. um, all sorts of terrible things while she herself has a little baby. And she spent her whole life trying to prove that her husband was innocent. And due to freedom of information legislation in America, Something mm-hmm. like 90,000 documents uh, were released to a lawyer that represented Hauptmann's wife. And there were numerous appeals. And she passed away not so long ago, which makes me, or makes me think that the son uh, could, could possibly be um, still alive. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. an extraordinary case. And... It was at the time <clears throat> described by the media and the uh, and the judiciary as the greatest story since the resurrection. That's a big call. Well, it did other things too, Dad, because I've been reading a bunch of law blogs and all of them talk about this incredible law that got instituted as a result of the kidnapping. I'll read here. The capture and trial of the kidnapper Bruno Richard Hopman sparked great national attention. Hopman was not even tried for kidnapping which would only have been a high misdemeanor under New Jersey law at the time. With inadequate evidence to prove premeditated murder, the prosecution eventually convicted Hopman under the felony murder doctrine for a death resulting during the course of a burglary. Stealing a child was not covered under the burglary law, so Hopman was convicted and eventually executed for a death that resulted during the theft of the baby's clothes. And that's uh, the case State v. Hopman, and then it's got the case number here. This episode caught the nation's attention and sparked legislative action even before the trial was completed. And this is what I wanted to talk to you about, Dad. The result was the so-called Lindbergh Law adopted by Congress. The Lindbergh Law makes kidnapping a federal crime when the abducted individual is taken across state lines. Though not originally a capital offence, the law was later amended to give juries the discretion to recommend the death penalty in particularly heinous cases. So, because of this kidnapping, this law was introduced. Mm. And... I mean, that that completely changed the way kidnappings were dealt with, and it also increased the severity of the possible, um, what would you call it, of the possible verdict uh, in a court case. Yes, yep. And Paul, isn't it fascinating when we all watch uh, movies uh, and TV shows, and they always, the FBI, and we, we all almost sort of know it intuitively, and that is the case, and cases where we hear, oh no, 
the FBI, the FBI cannot be called in until they cross state lines. And that then it becomes sort of a national matter. Yeah. And I guess the implication is, like, well, sorry, Owen. No, you go. No, you go. So you said you're saying it's, it's a little a, bit like. Well, it's a little bit like the the situation in Australia where you've got the um, the state police forces, New South mm-hmm. Wales police force, the police force that operate in Victoria, but then you've got the Commonwealth police. And a good example, where we live, we have a lot of naval bases. So state police, i.e. the New South Wales police force, do not have jurisdiction within the confines of, for example, the naval base down at Woolloomooloo. Yep. But the Commonwealth Police do. And it's like with embassies. So mm-hmm. different horses for different courses. And there are certain jurisdictions whereby an entity within the Australian government can invite state police in. Ah, yeah. So sometimes it takes something like this to have a, a necessity to change the legislation, which is quite fascinating. Um, Paul, I'd like to ask you in summing up, Picture the crime, yeah. picture the residents, picture the high security, the, the I mean, just the, 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 the balls to be able to go onto a property like that mm-hmm. and with your ladder, makeshift ladder, and just pick the right window that happens to be unlocked. Yeah. You go up. Mm-hmm. To me, even though I just said, Paul, what do you think now? I'm sort of waffling on myself. Yeah. So just... Paul, what what are your sort of what's your overview of, of of that night and what happened to the baby? I guess one thing that I think is entirely possible, it, I guess it's possible that Hopman was robbing the place, came across the baby and was like, "Oh, this is way more valuable than anything I could have done." So it's possible that it was a crime of opportunity potentially, and that would explain why he fumbled it so badly and why the whole thing was handled so strangely. I mean, it's obvious that Lindbergh um, Sr. was understandably calling in favours and exerting some influence to try and get this shit sorted because, you know, it's his son. Like, it's I understand why. Mm-hmm. But as far as the actual crime goes, I think it was either a crime of opportunity, uh, which went horribly wrong. I don't know if I believe that it was an inside job. I don't... I mean, what do you think? Do you think it was an inside job? I definitely do. Um, wow. I don't believe that he did all that and then wrote a note. I think he would have had the note written. I can't imagine someone just carrying paper, pen, pencil. Um, I can't imagine having having the good luck to be able to get onto the estate undetected to mm. pull up, we assume, at the right window. We don't know whether he looked in other windows. I yep. doubt it. Um, the window's unlocked. That's That's fortuitous he goes inside snatches the baby i believe it's completely premeditated i i part of me thinks that he would have um i mean did he have the intention of returning the baby uh maybe but then how did he get the baby out um without the baby waking yeah did he tie something around it to to muffle the sound did he I, I don't know. Perhaps um, I don't believe the baby died at that point in time because we know when the baby was found, it had a, a massive head wound to the skull, mm-hmm. uh, which on the balance of probabilities was the cause of death. So you would not suffocate a baby. Baby dies. 
you take the baby some miles away, you then stove its head in with a brick or stone or hammer, being a carpenter, uh, and partially bury. The partially bury the body, to me, indicates either extreme stress and agitation or more likely thinking you're going that there's someone nearby because it's a fairly quiet place it's like the many murders we've covered paul in america where it's dimly lit and they they remember the the, the killing grounds for example along yeah. that 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 the coastal zone yeah where you just um you had all the time in the world because you could see a car coming from 10 kilometers away mm. um i feel that the baby I feel it was premeditated. I feel he, I, I'm sure he didn't do a like a fireman's carry. Um, I almost feel that he either put the baby into a haversack or yeah. some backpack, or there was someone to, for him to get out onto the ladder. Then someone passed him the baby. He's gone down. the The, the major fear, of course, would be the baby screaming. Mm. Uh, that apparently did not happen. He then takes the baby away and for some reason he pulls up on the side of the road and he kills the baby. So we can assume the baby was alive from the cot to the resting place where it was buried. Like I said, it doesn't make sense to kill a baby and then sort of bash its head in. To me, that's just bizarre. But it's an interesting case and I'd like to hear... Uh, from some of our listeners, what what they think? Yes. Put up on the Facebook page. Yeah. Um, it's a tragedy. It's deeply tragic, and obviously, uh, we realise it's been quite a few weeks of <sighs> terrible things happening to children. But the Limburg case is so historically significant, we thought it worth having yes. a dive in. And also, next week we're going to get back on track with Australian crimes. So we're going to be talking next week about. Australian true crime, and I can't promise it will be any less harrowing, but I, I can promise that it will be a damn fine episode of Loose Units, The Shadow Files. But before that, we'll be back with an episode of Loose Ends at the tail end of this week, and God, there is so much stuff to talk about in Loose Ends, and we're really looking forward to it. Well, thank you for joining us for our multi-episode deep dive into the kidnapping of the Limburg baby. We will see you very, very soon, everyone, for more Loose Units. Bye-bye. Cheerio.